Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, we just finished the book of uh, Breshis, and um, and we said something very uh, very amazing. We say it always at the end when we finish a book. And um, I just wanted to begin by focusing in on on just a, a level and understanding um, these words that we say. We say Chazak, Chazak, Benid Chazek, which is translated as "Be strong, be strong, and have good courage." So, um, so I was thinking about this. I was always intrigued by these things. In fact, my um, my my five-year-old daughter came home from school on Friday with a a paper crown that she had made. And on it, it said, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. So they make a big deal about it in, in school also when you, when you finish a, a book of the Torah. And here she was wearing this, this crown of it. And, and, but, you know, Chazal, who instituted, our, our, our sages who instituted that we say these words, had something specific in mind. And sometimes we get, uh, or I'll speak for myself, I get sort of like wrapped up in sort of the excitement and the, and the ritual of it. And um, and don't think about what what, what the what the thing actually is. So so let's just let's just ask ourselves the question. We we finish a book of the Torah. We finish reading it because you do it in shul after you've uh, after you've read it from the scroll. You finish it and then you say, "Be strong, be strong, and have good courage." What do I need courage for? <laughs> in other words, let's, let's at the most simple basic level. You know what? Like, what is the relationship between this 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 great prayer, this very emotional sort of outburst, this joyous sort of request for for strength and courage? And usually, you need strength and courage for something that you're going to do, that you're about to embark on. Here, we're saying, "Be strong, be strong, and have good courage." But we've already accomplished the thing. Do you understand? Usually this is like, you don't say to someone, have a good trip, after they've come home from the trip. Right? So it's a very backwards seeming uh, prayer or, 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 or uh, expression. Because we've already done the thing that we're being, that we're asking God to give us strength to do. We've already done it. So, so whenever I'm baffled by a question... Uh, since I'm not, uh, I, I, I just go to my favorite place, which is Gematria, <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh, and so I looked up the Gematria of Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek, and it's the Gematria of the, the word uh, La Sosa, which means to do. And it comes from a uh, Pasuk in Devarim, and the, the Pasuk, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the Pasuk right now, but the Pasuk says, um, and you should do uh, all of the mitzvahs with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And I, I realized, wow, that's so perfect. This actually, for me anyway, this actually makes perfect sense and it, it all actually comes together. Because why are we learning the Torah? Why, why do we read it? We, we read it in order to do it. We read it and we learn it in order to perform it. And so, it makes sense that after we finish a chunk of, of the Torah, a book of the Torah, we say to God, you know, or God says to us, whatever it is, or we declare to each other, 
Be strong, be strong and have good courage. And the rest of the thought is, in order to do la sosa, in order to do that which you just learned. In order to perform that which you just learned. Um, there's a famous uh, series of debates uh, that's recorded in the Gemara that the, um, the sages of the Talmud had with the philosophers of Athens, the great Greek philosophers. And there are many back and forths. It's really, it's wonderful to, uh, it's wonderful to study. Um, while they were having one of these, um, one of these forums, I guess there was a break um, from the, uh, from the, the debate, the, the, the intellectual discussion, and there was, um, I guess, some sort of uh, meal that took place, and an argument takes place between two of the Athenian philosophers, and one of them kills the other one. And the Jewish sages are like, you know, they're, they're astounded, they're, they're horrified. These men of tremendous wisdom who they were just debating with, you know, and, and exploring the nature of truth and trying to, you know, trying to uh, really get deep with each other. All of a sudden, one of them kills the other one. So one of the rabbis asks, how could, how could you do that? And the answer back is a very heartbreaking answer. And by the way, we're, we're, we're on the same topic here. We haven't changed the topic. The point is that after you learn the Torah and you say, you, you request strength, what? To do the Torah. Okay? So the answer the, the Athenian gave back to the rabbi was, he, he was mystified that the rabbi was mystified, that this killing had taken place. And he says back to him, explaining, he says, he says, when we're, you know, while we're philosophizing, we're philosophers. And when we're not philosophizing, then, you know, then we're doing our thing. And so, so that's not the Torah. The Torah isn't, the Torah isn't when I'm inspired, then, or when I'm, you know, when, when I'm feeling religious, whatever that word means, um, you know, then I'm going to be religious. There's a comprehensiveness to to the vision of what it means to be in this world. Um, and, and we talk about it, but, but it's, it's so important that we really have it in our bones. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite, favorite stories of all time, I, I think it's been said in the name of different people, but I heard it in the name of the young Chidush Rim, who is the first Geir Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic masters, that he was like a child prodigy, childlike genius. And an older rabbi came up to him when he was a boy and said to him, I'll give you one penny or whatever the coin of the realm was. I'll give you one penny if you can tell me where God is. And he says back to him, I'll give you two pennies if you can tell me where God isn't. Right? So all of us know instinctively 
that the young child won that little conversation, you know? He got the better of the elder rabbi. We all feel that in our gut. But I was thinking about that story and I was trying to analyze exactly what, what was the nature of that debate? Why, why did he, quote-unquote, win that debate? And I think that the answer is, is because the rabbi said, I'll give you a penny if you can tell me where God is. He wanted to hear the answer that God is everywhere. But the problem with that answer, there's a problem with saying God is everywhere. Because we are finite creatures. As much as we have a soul, which is a piece of God, which is an aspect of infinity within us, nonetheless our intellect can only comprehend so much. That's, that's just what it is. I mean, if we want to be intellectually honest, we have to understand that there's a certain limit to what we can comprehend. That's just, that's just what it is. Um, as Rabbi Shlomo put it so beautifully one time, this world is like looking through a keyhole and you see a knife being lowered onto someone and you say, a murder is about to take place. And what's the reality? Inside that room, it's actually an, an operating room. And someone's life is about to be saved. There's surgery taking place. Someone's life is about to be saved. So it's a completely different dynamic. But we see just a little piece of reality. You know, someone wrote me, and they just put it so clearly that I just, uh, just was amazed by it, actually. They said, you know, there are three types of people. I'm sure you can make many, many more categories. But in this particular system, three types. I'll tell you, to digress on the digression. Um, someone uh, a number of years ago uh, said to me one time, he looked at me and he says, you know, I really see your life going in one of two ways. And I said, really? Just in one of two ways? <laughs> I said, that really seems like a failure in imagination. <laughs> so, so this person wrote me and said, there are three, three categories. One category is people who see this world, and that's, that's what they see. It's just this world. The second category is people who see that there's this world and there's that which you can't see. And both are real. And then the third category, which is that the next world, the world that we can't see with our eyes, is even more real, is even more real than the world that we can see with our eyes. And it seems to me that's the level where you want to be. <laughs> you want to be in that place. Because that's, if we are eternal, and we are, because we have souls, which we do, and we live forever, which we do, which means this world is an excursion, right? Which means the next world, which we can see, is our eternity. That means the world that we can see is more real than the world that we can see. So, so a person has to be very careful when they get to this level because, first of all, that takes, takes a lot to 
to, to really be in that place. The reason why um, a person has to be very careful is because they have to make sure that they're learning with people who are really grounded, really grounded in the Torah and in the Masorah, in our traditions. Because otherwise, you get, you get craziness. You get people saying, well, you know, I'll blow up people buying pizza for the real world, which is 72 virgins, right? Because that's the real world. So you have, you have to be grounded in truth. You have to be grounded in truth. To just accept that there is a world beyond this, it's like my grandfather used to have an expression, smart, smart, stupid, which means that you, you're on the right path, and you're on the right path, and then you're on the wrong path. You know, Elvis Costello once had a, uh, an album that I, the title of which was My Brilliant Mistake, <laughs> which I always liked. You know, just because you're learning doesn't mean you're necessarily going to reach the right conclusion. You have to reach, you have to be with people who are grounded in the Masora. You know, I once understood it this way. If you look at the word for truth in Hebrew, emet, if you take off the letter Aleph, it spells out the word mace, which means death. So, in other words, something can be, something can be compelling. There are certain philosophies that are very compelling, and yet they're not attached to the ultimate truth. They're not attached to the Aleph. You see, the way the word for truth in Hebrew is spelled, Aleph, is the Gematria 1. It means the oneness of God. And of course, we all know if you break down the letter Aleph, you can break it down into three letters, two Yuds and a Vav, which is the Gematria of 26, which is the name of Hashem. The Yud Ke Vav Ke is also the Gematria of 26. So Aleph, which is one, which stands for the oneness of God, it must be connected. You must connect yourself to the oneness of God, to Mount Sinai, to the Aleph of Anochi, when Hashem spoke the Aserah Adibros, the Ten Commandments. It begins with the letter Aleph, Anochi, I am Hashem, your God. You have to connect to the Aleph, because if you don't, then it's just Mem and Taf, the other two letters of the word truth, which spells death. Many philosophies are very interesting, they're very compelling. They're even internally consistent. But they don't attach themselves to the Aleph. You say, yes, there's a next world. There is a next world. It's even more than this world. Yes. So therefore, blow up people in a pizza parlor. What? It's not attached to the Aleph. So this notion then, this notion that the Chidush Rim says back to the rabbi, he says, it's not that God is everywhere. 
Because the problem with saying that God is everywhere is that our minds can't hold it. And so God will inevitably become an abstraction. He'll become an abstraction. He'll become just an idea, a nice idea, a beautiful idea, but an idea, as opposed to a reality. When I said earlier, religious, whatever that means, it's because we don't believe in religion. Judaism is not a religion. We don't believe in religion. We believe in reality. If it's not real, we don't want to do it. If it's not the truth, we don't want it. But we say it is the truth. That there is a world. You know, I was talking with someone yesterday. And um, this is a conversation that you really can only have between two very like-minded people. (laughs) Because otherwise, there are a thousand questions to ask on this exchange. But if you're plugged in, then it's like, all right. So what was the exchange? I said to this person, I said, you know something? If If you accept that you exist at all, if you accept that you exist at all, then you will arrive at the Torah if it's presented to you properly and you're intellectually honest. If you accept existence, the premise of existence, and you're intellectually honest, and it's properly presented to you, you will accept the truth of the Torah. The Torah saturates, God saturates everything. I want to share something with you that hit me, that just like it almost made me tremble a little bit, it almost made me shake a little bit, this this visualization. And, um, well, we're on this thing, we're trying to explain why this was such a deep answer from the Chidush back to back to the rabbi, there's, I'll give you two pennies if you can tell me where God doesn't exist. Meaning, there's not that God is everywhere. It's deeper than that. There's no place devoid of God. There's no place devoid of God. That's what he was saying. And it's not a semantical thing. Let me, let me, let me be clear. Imagine a pyramid. Imagine an upside-down pyramid right now. Or a V, like the letter V, if you will. Okay? It's an upside-down pyramid. If you say God is everywhere, what happens is, is that the notion of infinity is such that it just expands and expands and expands and expands, and then you can't, the mind can't contain all the information anymore. I just heard a, a report that there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand in the world. And there's a whole mathematical calculation which supports this. How big is the world if there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand in the world? I mean, the mind can't hold it. But if you imagine now a... If you imagine now a... uh, a pyramid going the other way, 
like an arrow, if you will, where everything just becomes focused in the moment. There's no place devoid of God. Meaning that every single moment of every single one of our lives, God is pointing to that and God is revealed into that space. Then all this, my mind can hold that. God is here right now, God is here right now, God is here right now. My mind can hold that. Because it's the above coming down to the below. Everything is filled with godliness. That, that I can get. It focuses me. It makes me appreciate every moment, every person. Because I see every single moment in every single person is a focal point of the revelation of godliness. Then, then I'm in a relationship. Then I'm in a real relationship. So now listen to this. We have... Well, you know what? I'll start with the concrete and then I'll go to the example from the sitter. You'll see what I'm about to say right now exists in the sitter. Um, you know, there are many different expressions of our relationship with God. Um... And this is the sort of bit of imagery that sort of like made me shake a bit. So you have the, the, the more famous ones, the more common, kind of popularized ones, which is Hashem is our father, okay? Or even Hashem is our, uh, is our master, okay? So you have the, the master-servant kind of idea. You have the father-child kind of relationship. And in fact, those are probably the two most, the two most common expressions. And in fact, in the, in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, God, if you're, don't treat us like a master to a servant, treat us like a parent to a child, because that's a whole different relationship. And really, they focus in on these two paradigms in terms of our relationship with God. But then, you know, also 100%, 1000%, kosher Torah, we've got the Shir Shirim relationship, where it's like two great intimate loves, right? Like a husband-wife, two, two lovers, really, you know, in, a, in the most sanctified expression of that word. Um, and that's 100%, 1,000% also going on in terms of our relationship with God. Okay? So now, let's go into the sitter, and then I'm going to give you just a way to visualize what I'm talking about. You know, when you... Can, can someone hand me a, a, one of the sidurim? Um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I can find it faster in one of the black ones over there. Gary, Gar, if you want to grab it. Um, if I... I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you two examples... Where, where you see something, maybe, maybe I'll even do three examples, but let's start with two. Where you see something very, very interesting. Um, and this is all deliberate. I, I can't quote you a source other than me and the center, but it seems pretty obvious. After you hear it, I, it will be hard to disagree with this. We say, Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokeinu, Shem Echad. This is talking about the oneness of God. And it means that God is filling the entire world because God is one. 
Then we say right afterwards, in other words, how close is God? He's filling the entire world. He's right here. The next moment we say, Baruch Shem Kavod Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom for all eternity. So in other words, once you have this sense of ultimate intimacy, He's right here. His oneness fills the world. What's your next thought? He's the king. The king is on the throne. Baruch Shem Kavod Machuso. His malchus, his kingship, is forever. So, on the one hand, we have this language of his ultimate closeness, and then the next breath, he's the king. He's up on the throne. Okay. Let's, let's do another example. You'll see the exact same thing. In, in Kedusha, after... During the repetition of Shmon Esra, what do we say? We say, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Sfakot, Melokalar, Kivodo. Holy, holy, holy is Hashem, the master of legions. The whole world is filled with His glory. He's right here. He's saturating all of existence. He's right here, ultimate closeness. What's the very next thing we say? Baruch Shem Kavod, uh, Baruch Kavod Hashem Mimkomo. Blessed is the glory of Hashem from His place. Meaning, up above. It says that the angels themselves wonder, where is the place of His glory? Meaning, the angels themselves don't even see the ultimate highest source of it. So in other words, what's closer than Kadosh, 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 He's right here, and then back up, Malchus. We call this imminence and transcendence. Imminence, meaning God's ultimate closeness, and then bam, you're right back up to transcendence beyond this world. Beyond this world. So now, so is this a schizophrenic religion? In other words, am I saying that God is my, you know, intimate great love, like Shira Shirim? But wait a second, he's also my... King, master, so one moment he likes me, the other moment he doesn't like me. So what is it? So here's the image that came into my head. I thought, now remember, when we talk about Hashem and the Jewish people, there's a male-female, of course God doesn't have a body, He's not male or female. As I always say to my children, God doesn't have a body, He makes bodies, right? Um... So, nonetheless, in terms of exploring the, the depths of Torah, we do assign, so to speak, a, a, uh, a gender. But again, this is, all, this is very deep stuff. It doesn't mean there's any physicality to God. God is the chasan, God is the groom. B'nai Yisrael, the Jewish people, are the kala. We are the, we are the bride. So, even if you're a in this world, so to speak, even though if you're a man, nonetheless, we are all in the quality of being the bride, the female, vis-a-vis God. Um, So now, imagine, imagine you are 
humanly speaking, just to give you a concrete image to wrap your mind around, humanly speaking, kaviocho, as we say, imagine you are the intimate in the female sense now. You are the intimate of the great king. And I'm talking about a mortal king right now. Again, just to speak in very concrete terms to, so that we can grasp this idea. You are the great love of the king, right? And you have this intimate relationship with the king. Now imagine the king is having a very great assembly, a state official assembly. And the king is on his throne and he's surrounded by his ministers. And those people, the populace, are in, are in attendance in the royal palace. Now imagine you're standing there among the populace. Maybe you've got more of a front row seat, but nonetheless, you're there among the people, right? And how are you looking at the king? How are you looking at the king? The king is there on his throne, but you have a very special relationship with the king. You have a very intimate relationship with the king. Nonetheless, the king is on his throne, and you're there with the populace, and you're looking at the king. And the king is the king. The king is on his throne. The king is in his official garb. And he's looking at you. So I think that's us. I think that's us. It's both going on simultaneously. It's not schizophrenic. It's not one moment God is close, the next moment, zoom, he's up in the heavens. That's not what it is. It's going on simultaneously. There's no contradiction. There's no contradiction. There's that ultimate closeness, that knowledge of closeness, that history, shared memory of closeness, ongoing closeness, but a recognition of the reality of the true nature of the relationship that the king is also on the throne as well. The king is the king. But they're both going on at the same time and there's no contradiction. I would say that's a great relationship to have. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I hear, you know, you know, getting married is a tricky business. And especially uh, when you want to be fixed up and people say, okay, what are you looking for? So sometimes this is a bit of a test because... The person wants to hear, what are you looking for? If you say, hey, I want a rich guy with a, with a Ferrari and stuff like that. And then the, then the person listening goes, okay, this person, all right, might not, you know, I, I might know someone special, but I'm not introducing this special person to this person. All they want is material things, you know. So sometimes people are a little bit careful with their answers. You know what I mean? They want to make sure that they... They, that they look good in terms of what they're looking for because they know that it's going to be certainly on some level a reflection of themselves, you know? 
I remember when I was single, I wanted to be very honest at the same time. And I, uh, a rabbi was asking me, you know, like what I was looking for. And I said various traits. And at the end I said, and you know something? If she's beautiful, that's okay too. I said, there are beautiful women out there. Why, why shouldn't they get married also? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so what has to be? One has to be honest as well, but also, you know, you put, you put first things first. Um, I know sometimes I hear people say, uh, you know, yeah, and I want to marry a guy, but I want him to be, like, distinguished. I want him to be distinguished. And you know what? You know, in, its, in, in the right context, there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason why I bring that up is because how, how lucky are we? Who are we linked with? Who's more distinguished than God? <laughs> and it's not like, oh, if only I could get Him. We have Him. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> or He did it. <laughs> We're there. The relationship is going on right now. Right now. You can't beat that. I mean, you talk about, you know, did you ever hear someone say, oh, she married very well. You know what? All of us, we married really well. <laughs> we did great. We did, we, no, no, better than great. So, you know, I'll tell you something. It's, life is strange. Life is, life is strange. Um, sometimes, you know, I think, you see, my rabbi told me one time that you can't just hear one speech from a, from, a, from a rabbi. The reason why you can't hear just one speech from a rabbi is because oftentimes during a talk, someone will be trying to emphasize a particular point. But it doesn't mean that they don't also believe that in certain circumstances, the opposite of the point that they're making isn't also true. So that's why you have to, you have to sort of be immersed in their... Their, their general outlook so that you can triangulate and then you can understand, you know, the context for the various thoughts. That doesn't mean if a, you know, if a big rabbi is in town, you'll say, well, I'll only be able to hear him once, I'm not going to go. That's not a go and, go and hear him, you know, for sure. But, 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 but the point is there. So I'm going to make a, a point which is sort of like, uh, I'm, I'm going to be saying, the reason why I'm giving this introduction to the point I'm about to say is because I'm saying sort of like, so to speak, the opposite of the point, if you will. We have needs. The, the, let me begin with the main point. We have needs, and we have to work on our needs. We have to work on our needs. If we don't have a job, we, we need to get a job. That, that's our need, and we, we need to get a job. If we, if we don't have a Kids, God willing, God will bless us with kids. If we don't have um, a, a, a marriage partner, God willing, God will bless us with the marriage partner. So, so that's, that's for sure. 
That's for sure. And that's the basic ongoing marching orders for all of us. But now let me make the opposite point, which is what I wanted to say initially. But I, I won't be understood unless I had just said what I, what I just said. On some level, and I'm speaking very deeply right now, on, on, on some level, if we don't have that thing, on some level, on some level, Hashem is also saying to us, maybe you don't need this thing right now. Maybe you don't need this thing right now. That doesn't mean that therefore we shouldn't continue to actively pursue the thing. We should. We should. But sometimes we experience a level of crisis that we don't necessarily have to be experiencing. Because if we really needed it, as much as we think we needed it, Hashem would have given it to us. And if He hasn't, maybe, maybe, and really I have to, I'm surrounding this with tons of caveats, but I just want you to just hear the idea. How you apply it, you have to apply it correctly. But just hear the idea. Maybe we don't need it as much as we think we need it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. Doesn't mean that we don't ultimately need it. But in the moment, maybe it it isn't the crisis that we're making it out to be in our lives. And if that's the case, let's continue to follow the steps that this leads down. If that's the case, then maybe where I'm at right now is much better than where I think I'm at. Because this crisis that I think is taking place may not be taking place to the extent that I think it's taking place. Which means maybe I can free myself to enjoy what's going on right now. Because if I needed it really, God would have given it to me. And when I do need it, He for sure will give it to me. So it's going to come, and if it's not here yet, and this is what He wants from me right now, Let me enjoy the present. Again, it doesn't mean abdicating general responsibility of pursuing one's goals. When I went to see the Umshan of a Rebbe many years ago, Shlita may be blessed and strengthened and live long, and he's one of the foundations of the world. I said, I asked him, please give me a, a, a blessing that I should get married. And he looked at me with, you know... Anyone who knows who the Umshan of a Rebbe is knows that every word literally, literally, every word that leaves his mouth is with 1,000% kavana, holy intention. He looked at me in the eyes and he said, a shidduch, a marriage partner, is a gift from heaven. If you put in hishtadlis, if you put in effort, help will come. That's what he said to me. And I'll tell you something, the night I met my wife, The night I met my wife, it was at a party in New York. It was actually Xmas Eve. And, um, you know, and uh, there was uh, another party, which was like a going nowhere type party, you know, that I was invited to. And uh, I literally said to myself, I have to, the umption of a Rebbe said, I have to put an effort. 
I have to show God that I'm serious. If I'm not showing God that I'm serious, then, then I'm not doing my job. And I, I, even though it was, I think, a year after he had told me that, I said those words that night. I didn't go to that party. I went to the other party, which I didn't want to go to, and I met my wife. So, so, so one has to continue to put in effort toward pursuing one's goals. However, one doesn't necessarily have to allow themselves to be in a crisis mode. Now you say, well, wait a second, but it's uncomfortable. You just want me to forget that I don't have these needs. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we can exacerbate situations. And I'll give you an example of this, and and, uh, we'll finish up. Sometimes people do something and they're not really aware that they're doing it. And I've noticed this, and so just in case maybe this, this might help someone. Sometimes people will have something negative that happens to them, something painful that happens to them. And they talk about it a lot. And sometimes that can be therapeutic because you get it off your chest, so to speak. Sometimes it's not therapeutic and people aren't aware of it. It's just they talk about it and what happens is they cause themselves to relive an aspect of suffering that they don't have to put themselves through again. And by talking about it, it's not helping. So a person should be aware of the fact when, when talking about it is going to help and when talking about it is just sort of like, oh, like they, they've been habitualized to, to, to sharing their own suffering, you know? So, so, so be sensitive to that because sometimes not talking will help you more than talking. Sometimes talking will help you more. Okay, so so let me just finish up this point about the great Chidush Arim's answer. I'll give you two pennies if you can tell me where God isn't. That no place is devoid of godliness. And like I always like to share, especially with people who are just experiencing um, Torah, and, and a lot of people have the same, um, the same uh, situation that happens to them, which is that they say, they go, for instance, to a Shabbos table, and they feel Shabbos, and they feel a family, and they feel closeness and everything like that, and they go, you know, I want to connect more with this, and then all of a sudden, like a big wooden two-by-four, they get hit over the head, and they find out, wait a second, with this comes all of that? Wait a second, I didn't, I didn't sign up for like, you know, 8,000 volumes of Jewish law. Like, what, what happened? I was just having some chicken soup. And you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm in chains. Like, what happened? You know? So... <laughs> So, so we can understand this from a completely different perspective, 
which is that if there's no place devoid of godliness, if God fills the entire world, if we're in this amazing relationship with the king where we're simultaneously the king's intimate, the king's intimate mamish, while at the same time being a subject of the king. And that's going on simultaneously at every moment. And that God fills the entire world. And that we understand that there's no moment, there's nothing that can't be sanctified. There's no moment, there's no thing that can't be elevated. That's why, you know, to me, one of the greatest things in the world is the fact that there's a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes. I love that. I love that. Because if it's really true that there's no moment devoid of godliness, then there has to be a Torah way to put on my socks and shoes. I want there to be a Torah way to put on my socks and shoes. It's not, now you're telling me how to put on my socks and shoes? No! Thank God there's a way to put on my socks and shoes! By the way, it's right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe. Then the order gets reversed. You tie your left shoe, you tie your right shoe. Thank God for that. There has to be that. If God really, really, really permeates, saturates all of existence, all of human experience. I want that. Okay, I might not be able to do it all at once. It might be a slow process before I can begin to integrate this into my life. I get that. I'll I'll try to do it in a sane, rational way. But I want that closeness. I want to be enveloped in godliness because I am enveloped in godliness. You know, uh, I've shared this muscle with you before and we'll, 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 we'll end with this. But... But I'm saying it to you again because I realized that it's just an explanation of a pasuk in the in Yeshaya, and I never uh, I never made this connection before. Um, I, I was speaking to a group, uh, I guess two weeks ago, and after the talk, I said, you know, if anyone has any questions, you know, about anything, you know, about you know. You know, I was talking about spirituality and I was talking about Hollywood and things like that. And I said, if it's even just a question about, you know, the business, whatever it is, you know. And uh, someone raised their hand and said, do you have any uh, general um, advice? Any, any advice? And I said, this was my answer. I said, you know, one time I was picturing a conversation between two fish. And one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And I said, think about the question for a moment. (laughs) And the other responds, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. I said, meanwhile, you know, all there is is water. (laughs) Water is keeping us alive on the fish level. We're surrounded by God. People question the existence of God. It's crazy. All there is is God. That's the only thing that's going on in the world. So then she said back to me, well, I meant like, um, more like career advice. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I said back to her, it says, Reishis Hachma Yiras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the recognition, is the awareness of God. There is no wisdom unless one recognizes God. All wisdom begins with that starting point. And then afterwards it hit me, we say it a lot on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, it's a Pasuk from Yeshaya, from Isaiah the prophet, that we pray for the day when the knowledge of Hashem will fill the world. Now listen to this language, it's an amazing language. The knowledge of Hashem will fill the world like the waters fill the oceans. Like the waters fill the oceans. Can I ask you something? What's an ocean? It's water! <laughs> like the waters fill the oceans? In other words, it, the only thing there is is God! That the awareness of God should fill the world like the waters fill the oceans! In other words, what... Have a good week. <laughs>